Hello and welcome to the 20 Minute Hit, back again after a week off with our fast-talking all-sport podcast that's 20 minutes and 20 minutes only. I'm Ollie Wilson, sports broadcaster for BT Sport, TalkSport and the Football League and joining me once again back from his jollies is Mr Paul McDonald, my esteemed journalist co-host. Paul, a pleasure to have you back on the show, mate. How are you doing? Thoroughly depressed after two and a half weeks in beautiful sunshine in the States and rainy Leeds has beckoned me, so... You'll hear my dulcet but ultimately depressed tones for the rest of this podcast. Well, well I'm hoping at least some uh, some lively sporting debate will be able to cheer you up today. Remember, it's five topics, three minutes on each. Once the three minutes is up and you hear the buzzer, we'll be moving on. And we've got two new guests to the show joining us here today. Uh, the first guy uh, is a man I know very well, uh, who I've been talking to for a number of years about all things world football and all sports in general. He's the one in the only Mr. Yahoo Sports and ESPN writer and CNN correspondent on world football. Mr. Kristen Hennage joining us here on the show, mate. Kristen. A pleasure to have you on board, mate. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. And I feel sorry for you, mate, already being back in Leeds, but at least he's not Steve Evans. Think about it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Alongside Kristen, uh, and new to the podcast, is a US journalist who has been working for BBC Five Live, who's written for USA Today, MLB.com, and the host of The Real Deal in Sports on KGNU Radio. The one, the only, Mr. Josh Chetwin. Josh, a pleasure to chat to you finally. It's been too long we've been talking about this. Finally, we get to talk all sports with you. I know, my maiden voyage. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully I'll bring uh, not too of closed-minded an American perspective. Uh, I, I appreciate you already understand the stereotype that we're pinning you into very early on here on the show. Before we get into everything, quick reminder, guys, once the buzzer goes, kill off the topic. We want to move on to the next one. Short, sharp, and sweet as we dive into our first topic of the day, Jose Mourinho. He's got Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool coming up this weekend. The wheels are truly falling off for the Chelsea manager out of the League Cup in mid week on penalties to Stoke. It's all going wrong after he was sent from the stands against West Ham last weekend as well. Paul, I'm going to kick things off with you because you've been away for a while. Jose Mourinho, is it do or die coming up against Liverpool at Stamford Bridge this weekend? Yeah, I think it is. The beauty of this situation for Jose is he's never been anything close to this before. When 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 things have went bad, when his previous tenure at Chelsea, he bailed out after falling out with Abramovich. Um, his tenure at Real Madrid didn't end particularly well, but nothing on the scale of this. And Having watched Chelsea pretty close over the past couple of weeks, it, it seems clear to me that Mourinho has completely ran out of ideas as to what the problem is. Since the start of the season, there's been this malaise at Chelsea and it doesn't seem to show any signs of shaking. Even even the, the best players of last season are looking like complete frauds and duds. And Mourinho, I think, has exhausted every option. He's exhausted every option, not only in terms of what he said publicly, but what he's done privately. And I just think that if, if this continues... Abramovich has sacked managers for much, much less in the past. I don't see why, other than a massive compensation payment, why Mourinho should be any different. It's the trouble as well that he keeps on attracting the attention and attracting negative attention by all of his actions and his comments. He's not dampening down anything at all. When something negative happens, he decides to go and almost put a C4 charge on it and explode it up in the media even more. He doesn't care. That's what it is. He really doesn't care. And you can tell that in the way he acts. The, the Carnero thing. If you, I mean, if you look at his career, he, he's kind of made a career on the back of forging this idea that it's us against them. And that essentially means you have to stay in character all the time. You can't break it and say, OK, well, actually, I made a mistake with either Carnero. I made this mistake here. And so now he, he doesn't care. And I think he's starting to realise that even though he came to Chelsea for the second time and said, I want to build this legacy, I want to build something long term, I think he's just realised that's not who he is. He's a short term guy that never really lasts longer than two, maybe three years at best, and then he moves on. And there's no shame in that. 
it's just accepting what you are. It's it's a bit like being on the playground and accepting you're a defender and not a striker. But but why is he this short-term man? Why can't he do the, the dynasty, if you will, that he wanted to do and build at Chelsea or he said he wanted to do when he came, when he returned? But isn't that part of his character? I mean, it seems to me that that's part of, of who he is, that when you build that larger-than-life character, and we see this in other sports too, that the types of coaches who create uh, the culture of us against them, that it only lasts for so long. It just seems to peter out at some point. And American football has this all the time with the type of coaches, uh, Rex Ryan. They, they can't last a long time because they're too much personality, and the personality overwhelms the talent on the field. Is and that's, and that's, that's the thing that frustrates him. He, that's why he... His relationship with Arsene Wenger is so strained because he, he admires, secretly admires a lot of the things that Wenger has managed to achieve at Arsenal. But he knows personally he's not that type of man and he's not capable of it. And if you want one particular example, it's his approach to youth development, which is flat zero. It has been zero at every single club he's ever been at. Mourinho would rather go out and spend £20 million on a midfielder than play anybody like from, from Rubis Loftus-Cheek or Solanke or any of these Chelsea youth Youth team players that have, have dominated that scene over the years. He would rather go out and buy a player and put him in there than play those guys. And long-term futures of, of clubs are based around uh, youth development and talent. He is a man of the short-term tenure it is, and it could be finishing this weekend as his side take on Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool at Stamford Bridge. If it all goes wrong, Jose could be gone. Uh, let's move on to scandals elsewhere around football and the ongoing scandal, of course, that continues with FIFA. Sepp Blatter coming out this weekend and saying that Russia was already given the 2018 World Cup by FIFA execs before the voting even took place. The FA reacted angrily to this. Gentlemen, are we even surprised about this announcement that Blatter is saying that Russia already had the World Cup in the bag before the voting process? Uh, and is, is this scandal ever going to finish or is it just going to continue to unravel and unravel? I'm not surprised at all. In fact, I'm sort of relieved because this was the expectation that we all had, that it was as corrupt as it could possibly be when it comes to FIFA. And now we're finally at least seeing the pieces. And I think that on some level, w the known entity the known facts that are going on it makes it a lot easier just to handle do, do we so you're almost saying like we're pleased then that this has, yes, has come out uh, because yes. we because we we can now kind of go well it's as bad as we all thought Exactly. Because I think that if you if you go the other way and you're wondering, oh, were they really as bad? I mean, I think we all know intuitively that Sepp Blatter was completely, uh, you know, amongst the worst leaders of any sports organization in the world. But when you have the facts to go along with it, it makes it a lot easier to sort of figure out a way to move forward. With uh, with Blatter then uh, bringing this out, should the FA take any action against FIFA? I mean, they're going to feel like uh, grief because they put 21 million pounds into their bidding process for that World Cup. Should, should the FA be taking action or should actually they be looking at themselves and going, we were still part of this process? And, and obviously there was the incident we're taking England out for to see Jack Warner and play in Trinidad and Tobago as well. Yeah, they gave enough golden handshakes that they've got absolutely no right to be disappointed. They, they were just as invested in the the process in that sense and the darker side of the process that I would keep very quiet if I was them and, and actually you've got nothing to complain about because you would have been more than happy if, if that process had led to you getting the World Cup. In that case, are we, is, are we right to see that Blatter's saying that we're bad losers? I mean, are we still just bad losers that are making a kerfuffle about this and actually we should just let this investigation go on without keeping on, keeping on mentioning every single detail that comes out and saying, oh, look how aggrieved we were about not getting this World Cup? We as a country aren't because a lot of people in that bidding process were honest and fair. But those who made the major decisions, they were the corrupt ones and they were the ones that tried to play the system, if that's even the right term. So there's a lot of people who have a... a total and legitimate right to feel aggrieved because they've put a lot of hard work in and seen that 
bear no fruit because it was already predetermined. Paul, is this Blatter just going down all guns blazing now? He's suspended, of course, at the moment, along with Platini, around the £1.35 million, uh, million pound payment to Platini that is still being investigated, as is throughout the majority of uh, everybody involved at FIFA. Is this Blatter just going, right, if I'm going down, let's all go down in style? Yeah, he's a, he's a slippery little snake, isn't he? And the <laughs> fact that he did it with a, this interview with a Russian agency um, where he deems himself home because he's such good friends with Vladimir Putin, apparently, it speaks volumes. He he wants to take the entire organisation down with him because the man has such self-belief that he thinks that everything that FIFA and football has achieved over the past 20 years is down to him and him alone. And if it's if he is, his legacy is going to be tarnished by it, he's going to nuclear blast the entire thing. And I think that the, 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 the most damning thing for FIFA is when you look at the list of potential replacements, it's like a who's who of corruption in, in FIFA over the last 20, year, 20 years. Even when we're taking Blatt out of the equation, you're looking at Platini, Hayato, these kind of guys. Yeah, it's pretty grim, and I'm not really sure how you how you, you reform this. I guess uh, FIFA's probably then going to be just the never-ending story that gets worse and worse to read for every single football fan that just cares about uh, the beautiful game rather than all the corruption and money lending uh, and money deals off the pitch, that's for sure. Uh, let's move away then from the misery of football and try and peel, uh, pick up Paul's uh, spirits and talk about the World Series that kicked off this week. The Kansas City Royals taking on the New York Mets. Game one, an absolute thriller. 14 innings in a 5-4 victory for Kansas City. But plenty of discussion about Edinson Valquez, the uh, leader pitcher for uh, Kansas City his father dying just before the game the club saying to the media they didn't uh, tell Volquez his family didn't want uh, Volquez to know before starting it ESPN Deportes tweeting about his father's death during the game and could have perhaps played a part in Volquez knowing during the game about his father's death this brings up a big moral obligation gentlemen of the media and what they should report and what they shouldn't report uh, Josh, your reaction first to to the fact that ESPN did decide to run with this story while the game was being played and could have perhaps broken the story of uh, Volquez's father's death to him while he was midway through World Series Game 1. Well, I hate to take a non-journalistic approach, but I feel like we don't have all the facts on this particular story. The the national telecast, which was done by Fox, uh, and this would have been the telecast that would have been on in the clubhouse for the Kansas City Royals, they made the very conscious decision not to disclose this fact on that particular broadcast. And the odds that Edison Volquez was looking at his Twitter account you know, as a person who played baseball for a very long time and you're in this situation that he saw it beforehand is, is almost nil. So on the one hand, I don't think that, that uh, ESPN Deportes should have disclosed it. On the other hand, I don't think that it had an impact. I, I think that, you know, we get so involved as journalists in trying to break the story that we forget the human quotient in these type of situations. And I think the way Fox handled it and waited until he was at least out of the game, that was the appropriate manner to deal with this. Uh, isn't this the kind of uh, interaction between journalist and player that, that almost brings up the need for press officers and that barrier that we all despise as journalists and, and, and prevents us from getting the access that we want to players as well? This is only something that highlights that sometimes the media can't be trusted. No, I mean, I really do think that the media it can be. And, and, and in the U.S., it's a lot more permissive. The press officers don't play that same role of controlling. But it's just like any other journalistic endeavor. At some point, you have to have an ethical barometer, a compass in there to know what's right and what's wrong. And I think for the most part, journalists got it right. And I, and I wasn't as familiar with Deportes uh, being, uh, disclosing that on Twitter. But again, th there's still a lot of misinformation about whether the family actually had told Volquez beforehand – 
I know that the press officer for the Royals said that he didn't know. Uh, it, it, there's just so much unknown about this. It's very hard to suss out. I think just the takeaway is, though, is that as journalists, we need to recognize the humanity of these players and not be so lustful for the story that we jump the gun. And I think for the most part, that's what journalists did. If it's unknown, Kristen, do and there's any doubt whether Volkis knows or not, do you run that story? If you're in that in that ballpark, you find out, you get first-hand information that Volkis' father has died, do you run that story? Do you tweet about it while he's out on the mount? No, you don't need to be first on this story. This is something you have to ask yourself, would I want to learn this about my own father in, in the same way? And the answer is no. And that's the problem with this culture now, is that it's it's whoever gets it first, not whoever gets it right. And we have to address that as as a as a fraternity almost that there are people in our industry that, that operate with that mandate and it's it's simply not acceptable the one crumb of comfort and i speak purely from my own experience of when uh my mom passed at 21 it doesn't sink in right away i'll be very honest it takes you maybe 24 hours to, for it to genuinely sink in so i would wager if he does find out on the field it probably doesn't even resonate with him for for a good while yet but it doesn't change the fact that espn deportes it's something that just feels kind of sleazy, if I'm really honest. It just feels very tacky and like they're trying to get something from it. And and I don't know what, because it could be done in such a more classy and dignified way. Yeah, it's, uh, it, as we said, and as Josh said, it, we don't know all the facts about whether Volquez knew or not while he was on the mound. There's still plenty of discussion about that, but not a great moment for ESPN Deportes and for the US media, I think, uh, who did discuss that during the game last night. Let's talk about a uh, slightly happier uh, sporting action from the US. The Jacksonville Jaguars in London on Sunday came to Wembley and finally got a victory, 31-34, over the Buffalo Bills, their third attempt at coming to London and finally getting things right. They are London's adopted team, if you will. They could be here in London uh, until 2025, playing at least one game uh, in the nation's capital. How big is it for the NFL to have their adopted team for this international series finally getting a victory? Uh, it's very valuable, I think. I think that it's important that that team continues to be competitive. But it's the second part of that, which is that the most important element to all the games that are played at Wembley is that the games are well contested. They're tight. It was an exciting game. And for the NFL, I think that's the bigger victory. If Jacksonville had have lost that game, but it had have been exciting that's all that really matters because that's what keeps the fans coming back. I, I think that there's enough uh, football out there, American football out there in the UK that uh, people are going to pick their teams. Uh, you know, you can't force someone to be a supporter of a club. So whether or not Jacksonville won or lost, not quite as important as the games being great. So the people are out there feel like they want to come back. The game was entertaining. It was uh, said that Wembley had 84,000 people in it. It certainly didn't look that way. Uh, if you saw it on television, there were plenty of empty seats. Uh, do, does the NFL need teams like Jacksonville who are coming across regularly to start winning to ensure that they do start guaranteeing still sellouts? Because we know they're going to play games at Tottenham as well, which is going to be a slightly smaller stadium. That should sell out then around about 60,000 once that is built. The NFL needs to keep selling out to make it worth their while to come back. Do they need these exciting big games to guarantee that? Or are we just going to start becoming disinterested anyway? I think, they, I think personally they're a mix of the big teams, as, as Josh mentioned there. Um, the, the, the fans in this country will are include up enough on NFL now and watch it more re so regularly that they will have their own teams and be passionate supporters of various teams. So I think if, if you're going to try and create an overall interest in the market, you need to start mixing it up and getting as many different teams in there as possible um, and making sure that the product is fresh because otherwise people might just get sick of seeing the same teams coming over and over again. And to me, to me, that would be the main problem of a London franchise. I think that franchising in the UK 
would mean that it would kind of force people to support the team that's based in London. I don't think people would want that. I think they would want to support the Cowboys and the Patriots and all the teams that they support currently. And I think it'd be better for the NFL if they continue to mix it up and have just sport matches played at Wembley rather than having a franchise based there completely. See, I disagree with that. I think that if you have a, a home country franchise, that the whole latitude and the whole perception changes, that they become your team. And I mean, the UK is amongst the best in terms of loyalty for their side to support. I mean, in the US, we don't talk about who do you support. Uh, you root for a team. You love your team. Uh, and certainly there are fanatical fans there. But the, the level of support, I think, that if there was a permanent franchise uh, in London, I think would actually bring fans in more regularly. I no, all of a sudden you'd have ownership. I wouldn't stop supporting the Philadelphia Eagles if a London side popped up, though, Josh, because I've invested my time and effort and love and support into the Eagles. I don't think you would immediately, but you look at the way franchises move in the United States, uh, Washington Nationals coming from Montreal and, and things of that nature, that over time you do build an interest and a concern for that team. I don't think it happens overnight, but I do think it ultimately does happen. All right, gents, finally on the show today, we've got the Rugby World Cup final coming up on Saturday at four o'clock. Australia take on New Zealand and simply, gentlemen, is this the Rugby World Cup final that we all kind of wanted to see the two best sides throughout this tournament really taking on each other and New Zealand the best side in the world by a country mile it seems right about now Paul I'll kick things off with you possibly not the best person to ask given my Scottish background and given the, <laughs> what happened to us in the quarterfinal I wonder why I passed that on to you mate yeah. <laughs> yeah I think yeah I think Australia have been slightly fortunate they were certainly fortunate against us and I think in stages of the second half against Argentina and they didn't look their best um, and if they play like that, if they play like they played in the second half against Argentina against the All Blacks, then it could be a really embarrassing day for them. Um, I don't really think the All Blacks have even come out of second or third gear yet. I think they've got more to offer. And um, if they do grind through the gears and step it up, I think it could be a really, a really one-sided final. I mean, the Australians, as you say, were, were fortuitous against uh, against the Scottish. I will give you that. Uh, they did play Argentina, though, off the pitch. It was only silly mistakes, really, that get Argentina in it with the number of penalties the Australians gave away. Is that just something they need to clean up and then they do really have a chance against this New Zealand side on the weekend? Yeah, I think when you when you look at the, the silly mistakes they made against Scotland as well, if, if, if they make those mistakes against the All Blacks combined with the, the All Blacks' superior ball play, I think they, they, could, they, they could be on the end of something. Um, I don't think a great deal was expected of this Australia team but they've managed to get out of that tricky group but if they play like that and, and give away this, this crazy tries that they give away against Scotland if, if they play like that against the All Blacks they're in serious trouble As an event is this, would this have been the best thing for it for, for New Zealand and Australia aside from obviously England perhaps being in it as hosts I think so I, I, personally I think you got your Cinderella story with Japan so that kind of quote has been filled now you really want to see the elite and Having watched New Zealand and confessing, not knowing a huge amount of rugby, and, and they're just brilliant to watch. They are so dominant. They're so just, oh, you're going to look back in years and say that that was a truly sensational team. And to see them tested against the next best is really what the competition needs because that's how it's going to get new fans by having the elite face the elite, not by having some kind of lesser team completely whitewashed by New Zealand in the final. 
I think that's what you're rooting for is a, a nonpartisan in it is that Australia, which does take chances, is going to do just that. And it's going to keep the, the, the match close, because if that happens, that's what's good for the sport. So, you know, if you're rooting for, for one team or another, New Zealand is, is the front runner. And you hope that Australia, though, surprises because that's what will make it exciting. As, as English fans or well, as, I guess Kristen and I, uh, as English fans uh, naturally will root for underdogs. Do we want Australia to beat New Zealand and to have the upset in the final, gents? Yeah, I'm why not? not? that much underdogs. That's the problem. Though. I mean, I watched New Zealand um, at the weekend, and they did give away a lot of stupid penalties. There was a lot of silly mistakes in there. And while they are brilliant in so many ways, I still feel as if they've got weaknesses there, and weaknesses that I would argue Australia can exploit. It will be very interesting to see if Australia can hold their nerve against arguably the greatest uh, rugby side on the planet in the World Cup final on Saturday. Gentlemen, a pleasure to have discussed all things world sport with you guys. Uh, Kristen and Josh, a massive thanks for joining us on the show. Paul, I'm sure I'll be speaking to you later in the week and later on next week. On next week's show, next Thursday, we'll be back at a very similar time. Until then, enjoy all the sport. Have a very good week and we will catch you on the other side.